Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Oscar Watch Podcast. My name is Stephen Buja. Welcome back to the show. And I do have to say we have a very special evening planned for you today. Alex Rubiello, longtime co-host, has returned from whence, wherever he was, and he is back with us to throw some knowledge down upon us. Alex, how are hey, you doing? what's up, guys? I'm good. I'm good. I'm glad to be out of the hell that I was in for the last month. The movieless work, <laughs> work, working hell that I was. Yes, and was. we are absolutely glad to have you back, man. Yeah. We missed you, Greg Moberg of This Was Rad podcast. You were great, and we will have you back. But it's Alex, man. We love Alex. How are uh, folks? Alex, Alex is special, but he made he's not the most not special that. person that we have tonight. <laughs> For the first time here on Oscar Watch, we have a third. Hosts and with us tonight is Christopher Olson of the Pop Culture Lens podcast and I believe many academic uh, books. But we will let him tell him uh, tell you about himself. Chris, how are you doing? Hey, I'm good, guys. I'm, I'm really excited to be here. Thanks for having me. Okay, Chris, you're the new guy. Tell us about your own podcast, uh, the Pop Culture Lens. Wow, what it's about, where you can find it, all, and how it came how it came into being. Well, for a little over a year now, I've been doing uh, the show, the Pop Culture Lens podcast with my partner, uh, Carrie Lynn Reinhard. She's my partner on the podcast, my partner in life. Um, and we're both uh, academics. She is a professor at Dominican University in River Forest, Illinois. I'm an adjunct instructor out there, among a few other places. And we wanted to make a podcast where, where we would bring some uh, academic theory to uh to listeners and make it easily understandable because a lot of times if you if you read academic theory or you encounter academic theory you you kind of need a few a few years of of schooling to understand it we wanted to try to make it accessible and understandable to people who might not have had that schooling because uh i know for for me i'm i'm of the mind that if a bunch of academics are just throwing terms back and forth uh, and just talking to each other, there's really no point to the things that they're doing. I think these ideas that a lot of academics talk about are really important uh, to the larger society, but they get so bogged down in obfuscation and jargon and things like that that it becomes really difficult for people to care about what they're saying because you can't make sense of it. So we wanted to have a podcast that uh, made these things uh, easy to understand. So we look at old media uh, of all kinds. We look at movies, we look at TV shows, we look at comic books. Um, I think one of our, our future episodes, we're going to look at Coca-Cola. Uh, you know, we just look at all kind of different elements of pop culture through a bunch of different theoretical lenses and just have a conversation uh, about them uh, and what they mean to the larger sort of populace and to the world uh, as a whole. That's basically what the pop culture lens is. Yeah. And it is a, it's like a bi-monthly pod. It's like twice a month thereabouts. We, well, we try to do, I think we're right now on a monthly schedule. Um, I think we have a, a two episodes, I think, scheduled for August. Um, we've been recording uh, quite a few episodes over the summer just to uh, build up a little bit of a backlog that we so we don't fall behind because we did once we had a, a, a brief hiatus when we got a, a little busy with uh, school stuff and, and teaching and, and all sorts of other because we, we've got a lot of 
projects going on and, and we got a little bogged down. So we're trying to make it so that that doesn't happen again. And, and we have uh, enough episodes in the can so where we can sort of dole them out uh, over the next few months and weeks. Yeah. And um, if audience, if this sounds like something you'd be, you'd be into, and I guarantee you, you will be. Chris, where can we find uh, the Pop Culture Lens podcast? Well, we're, we, uh, we are housed over at podbean.com. Uh, um, I'll find out the, um, the link. I can't remember what the exact link is, but I'll get it to you if you want to put it up somewhere or tweet it out or whatever. That's, that's fine. Uh, and we're on Twitter at uh, just Pop Culture Lens. Uh, on Twitter, we're on Facebook. Um, we are on Tumblr. We're kind of all over the web right now. So if people are interested, just go into Google, um, type in the Pop Culture Lens. You'll find us somewhere. Absolutely, and we're on iTunes. Oh, and we're on iTunes. I oh, keep yeah. forgetting iTunes. Yeah, the, yeah, the, be- the best place. Yeah. Before we start, can I can I just uh, reach out to Chris and personally apologize for back in the day? Uh, like, uh, was it a decade ago? We used to write for a site called Creature Corner, uh, which uh, I, I ended up running and having no knowledge whatsoever running a horror site, and uh, reached out to someone to help with DVD reviews. And uh, poor Chris <laughs> answered the call. And uh, I don't know if he ever regretted it, but I sent him so many shitty movies. I can't even tell you <laughs> because I would get I can't I, I, every day I would get I would get DVD by adapter DVD in the mail, and I, I it was just so many I couldn't handle it, and I. I I I got I personally got sick of horror movies just from watching all the direct that was constantly pushed out and uh, poor Chris was I sent him boxes of these uh terrible terrible movies like some of the worst like just B and schlock movies. Well, I, I, can't, I can't really say I ever regretted it because I did. There were a few movies that, that I watched that I actually liked. Um, right. I think the one time that I I was a little wary of it was when one of the actors in the movies uh read one of my reviews where i panned his film and he actually called me uh he, tracked me, he tracked me down and he got a hold of me and yelled at me over the phone wow, Wait, <laughs> wow. i can't remember it was uh, the lead guy from i, I probably shouldn't even say I, uh, you never know. Okay. who knows I, I i won't say i, I i'll leave that uh, as a mystery one time though <laughs> it was a good time i did enjoy it and, it, and i think it, it really helped uh, with my writing in the long run, so it was a it was a really good gig. I enjoyed it. <laughs> okay, well that's that's fantastic, Chris. Uh, once again, thanks for coming on the show. Um, we brought you on for a very special episode because uh, I believe you were, uh, we were we were chatting before we started recording that the film we are talking about this week is perhaps one of your favorite uh, favorite movies. It is. Uh, it's one of those movies that I will pull off the shelf every couple of years and watch it and just be blown away all over again by how great it is. Um, and I don't, I'll let you say what the title is. Yeah. I won't. Well, I mean, obviously, if you're listening to this, you probably already know. But the movie is the 1992 Academy Award Best Picture winner, Unforgiven, directed by the great Clint Eastwood and written by David Webb Peebles. Uh, it is... A western, in, in a sense, and I think uh, we can, we will get in, uh, get into deconstructing it a lot. Chris, you told me that there was a you wrote a paper about this for your masters or some or some academic well, I, uh, writing. 
what I did was I, I wrote my my master's thesis, um, and I looked at the films of Nicholas Vinding Refn, um, ah. uh, because I found the depictions of masculinity in those films really interesting. But as I was doing my research, one of the things that really kind of helped me to crack the uh, overall argument that I was trying to make was this really great paper uh, by a, a, a scholar named Dennis Bingham. And he put forth this argument about how the movie Unforgiven uh, demythologizes violent behavior. And it and it's kind of uh, functions as a way to dissuade viewers from idolizing or emulating that kind of behavior. You know, most of the time in, in like Hollywood Westerns or big action movies, you, you kind of uh, look at this violence and it's rendered cool and exciting and action-packed. And the stuff in Unforgiven and also in uh, reference films is really not. It's really sort of presented in a way that that uh, sort of leaves you feeling uncomfortable. It leaves you feeling um, uh, like like this is not the way you're supposed to uh, be acting. Uh, so that really just just finding that that piece of scholarship really kind of helped me to formulate what my own argument was going to be because I was kind of floundering at that point. And then I read that piece and I was like, oh, oh, this is exactly what I'm trying to say. <laughs> now, I believe you you teach a course on masculinity and pulp, pop culture at the university? Yeah, well, it's, it's a class. Uh, it's just called Masculinity and Communication. Uh, I, I teach it. I've taught it twice now. Um, and it's it's a class that takes place in the spring semester at Dominican University. Uh, and I use a lot of pop culture in the class to teach. I, I show um, a couple of different movies. I show a movie called A Walk in, a, a Walk in the Sun. It's an old war picture. Uh, I show the movie Wake and Fright. Um, I show an episode of uh, It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia. Um, I, show Fra- I show an episode of Frasier. Uh, so I use a lot of pop culture in the class. Talk about David Bowie, Iggy Pop, uh, Iggy Pop and Lou Reed, that kind of stuff. Um, but yeah, I teach masculinity and, and gender uh, is kind of my the main focus of a lot of my research. So uh, that's one. Of, and, and I find masculinity studies to be really interesting because uh, it's very relevant to a lot of the things that are happening in the world today. Uh, so that's why I kind of wanted to pursue that class because I felt it was really important. Uh, uh, I, given all the events of the political world and just the world in general, I can absolutely see that being important. Uh, a little look into the eyes of what makes man a man in the gendered sense of the word uh, could be very important to today's youth and to the, uh, the world at large. So that's a... That sounds like a, a very long uphill battle to be fighting. Sometimes it is, um, but the students are, are pretty receptive to the things we talk about. And, and I don't go into the class, you know, telling students, oh, masculinity is bad, men are terrible. That's not at all the, the, the purpose of it. It's more just this is how we've constructed masculinity and this is the this is what it leads to and this is what leads to it and it's all this kind of circular thing and we, we kind of talk about that and what it means so um i just didn't want any of the listeners to think that i was out there like indoctrinating people into <laughs> radical feminism or anything like that yeah. i'm sure that's carrie carrie lynn's job yes yeah exactly exactly <laughs> yeah. uh have you given any thought to showing unforgiven as uh in the in the class or have you taught it at least a little bit in the past 
I, I haven't, um, largely because the way I teach the class, I don't know if there's a place I could fit it, but just you just saying that just now made me think that there is a way that I could probably fit it in because one of the things I talk about is how so much of our perceptions of American masculinity are still kind of rooted in that uh, myth of the American West. Uh, and we have that idea of the sort of lone, powerful guy who comes in and he lets his actions speak louder than words. And and uh, the gunslinger is such a, a formative piece of Americana that, that shapes what a man is supposed to be, or at least ideas of what a man is supposed to be. Um, and I talk about that, but I, I could, this would, this, you know, using this film would probably be a good way to sort of deconstruct that idea and, and discuss it in the class. Yeah. I would, um, especially if you were to juxtapose it with, say, the Man With No Name trilogy, where there was kind of like the invention of the Clint, certainly the Clint Eastwood as lo- the lone gunman myth. And then you show that and then you have Unforgiven, which is Eastwood closing the book on that character once and for all. Uh, it's an idea. I'm not the teacher. You are. Uh. <laughs> no, I think it's a good idea, though. I think there is uh, I think there is something to that. And I and I do try to um, restructure the class whenever I teach it, because if you teach the same thing over and over again, it gets kind of boring for you, and then it gets kind of boring for the students. So I do try to mix things up a little bit. That might be something to consider for next spring, actually. Okay. And, well, Chris, uh, again, that sounds great. And we are so glad you are with us today. We're going to take a short break. When we come back, we're going to talk about the other films in 1992 that were nominated for Best Picture and 1992 Year in Movies in General. So do stick around. We'll see you on the other side. Long night, so uh, let's cut past the chase to the outcome. For best picture, the nominees are The Crying Game. Stephen Woolley, producer. A few good men: David Brown, Rob Reiner, Andrew Scheinman, producers. Howard's End, Ismail Merchant, producer. Scent of a Woman, Martin Brest, producer. Unforgiven, Clint Eastwood, producer. And the Oscar for the Best Picture of 1992... Goes to Welcome back to the podcast. Unforgiven, the nineteen ninety two Best Picture winner. Obviously, we know why. We know why we're here. It won Best Picture. But Alex, what else was did this movie win, and what was it nominated for? Oh, it was well a ton of stuff. It was nominated for nine awards. It won four of them. It won all the big ones, pretty much. Uh, best Picture, Best Director, Best Supporting Actor for Gene Hackman, which I think everyone would agree is one of the greatest decisions. Uh, best, edit, best, edit, best editing actually it didn't win for best actor for Clint Eastwood uh, or it, uh, it did not win. He was nominated. It, he was nominated, but he he got he got enough. He, he he'll, he'll be okay. Yeah, he got. I believe he I believe he probably picked he got up producer best. and director for this one. Yeah, he got director. He got picture. Yeah, yeah, he's he's fine. Yeah, but well, Al Pacino, he lost to Al Pacino for Incentable Woman, so right. you know it's all right. 
Yeah. Fun, uh, fun <laughs> fact, that um, Al Pacino was nominated twice this year for both Best Actor and Supporting Actor. He lost yeah. for um, Glengarry Glen Ross. And this, this marked the last time Al Pacino was ever nominated for an Academy Award. Oof. It's been 24 it? years. Wow. But really, what has he done since then? Yeah, yeah, no, not yeah. much. But um, so okay, so that's what Unforgiven won. What else was it nominated for? Oh, what else? It was nominated for everything else. It was nominated for screenplay, actor, cinematography, sound, and art direction. Yeah, art direction. All yeah. very good, good choices. I yeah. think those are those are solid nominations for the movie that wins Best Picture. And I have noticed. Yeah, yeah. I think I've noticed that a lot of the movies that win Best Picture. Also, they may not always win to Best Director or an Actor or anything like that. They usually pick up editing or cinematography. Mm. I think there's been a lot of great movies that have been edited really well that have won Best Picture and also picked up editing. So we're we gonna uh, figure out the formula. Is that what you're saying? We're gonna figure out the Oscar formula. Yeah, we're gonna see enough of them. We're gonna crack the code. <laughs> we're gonna, gonna win every single one of those. Uh, the the betting pools. Yeah, the and you can you can join us for our new podcast, Oscar Bet. <laughs> there you uh, go. <laughs> we just have people write in and we set up a pool. There you go. Yeah, there you go. Um, we'll have you on. We'll have you on for that definitely. Thank you. Okay, but um, movies do not just win in a vacuum. Chris, uh, what else was nominated for Best Picture in 1992? Well, it was a pretty solid field that year uh, because in addition to Unforgiven, you had The Crying Game. Uh, directed by Stephen Woolley. Uh, I'm a big fan of that movie, actually. I really like The Crying Game. Uh, a Few Good Men, uh, by, directed by Rob Reiner. Uh, you had Howard's End. but uh, Written by Aaron Sorkin, I believe. Yeah, I believe so. Yeah, I believe it was a, a Sorkin, I think. It's been a while since I've seen it, so I can't recall off the yeah. top of my head. Um, but Howard's End, yet another Merchant Ivory uh, film at the time. And then uh, Martin Brest's Scent of a Woman. Uh, so, I mean, those are all, those are five really strong, uh, picks, I think. Absolutely. And they also, I'm, I'm reading this, you know, Crying Game has, um, Jay Davidson, uh, playing a tra- uh, I believe a transgendered or a drag or something like that. I believe, yeah, I believe it's just a, a, a drag performance. I don't, I don't remember there being any, uh, implication of, uh, transgender okay. in that. I, I'm sorry. I, I didn't want to say the wrong Right, but you know, a few good men, scent of woman. I feel like you could take 1992 as a whole and condense it into like a class on uh, perhaps identity, masculinity, gender politics. In that's true. uh, For you know, as 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 a little bit, you know, a few good men has you know, you know, there's the whole. I believe that was about the you know military masculinity, scent of a woman. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you got Pacino being kind of skeevy but awesome yeah and there's also some military masculinity in that because wasn't he like a retired military person in that movie yeah oh yeah he was yeah yeah he got got blinded in a grenade accident or something and that's that's the whole whole stick but i have not seen howard's end have you guys seen howard's end i'm not no No, i haven't okay one gap my mom says it's a great movie and um it's it seems it seems like it's built for moms (laughs) <laughs> it's one of those movies, though, that, that I do see pop up on a lot of best of lists, and I feel like it's one that I should see, and I, I've meant to see it. I think it's been sitting on my, because I still do DVDs from Netflix. I'm kind of old-fashioned that way, but it's been sitting on my Netflix queue <laughs> since forever. Okay, okay. Um, so those are five very strong movies that were um, that were nominated. Uh, so it, it just a few little fun Oscar notes. Uh, this this was this marked Eastwood's first time 
uh, being nominated and also first time winning as a best director. You know, he's been directing films for God knows how long. He had uh, Bird, uh, uh, you know, his biopic of uh, what was that, Birdman? Charlie Parker? Yes. Yeah, Charlie Parker. Parker, It's like a bunch of other things. And uh, it was not his last. He would go on to be nominated uh, six more times, winning winning again for Million Dollar Baby in 2004, was it? No, 2003. Yeah, yeah, 2003, in which he also, I believe, scored a Best Actor nomination as well. Uh, Yeah, and... Really good genre films that year. <laughs> oh yes, and and yeah, and there were. And Alex, you want to tell us about the yeah, genre no, I, I, movies, I, the other one, movies in 1992. The one I would say, which would have probably you know been nominated at least, was Dead Alive. I think <laughs> Brain Dead, uh, Peter Jackson's <laughs> Peter Jackson's seminal splat stick uh, <laughs> classic. That uh, he would get his due later, though. Yeah, yes. <laughs> that's true. Yes. That's true. He get a couple, <laughs> but um, yeah, no, actually, well, it actually wasn't that great of a year. They had there were some good, some good titles. There was. Army of Darkness came out, which I still think I still think holds up. I'll still fight for that one, even though I know a lot of uh, people don't. The, uh, people don't you have my steel. There's yeah, yeah there's, yeah, been, I'm, some, there's I'm been like a backlash board. to that. I think it's because it's been like overly quoted and uh, and too many nerds uh, harped on it. And uh, Bruce Campbell's whole mythology that's been built up around him be kind of because of that film. Uh, um, but I think it, I still think it holds up as like a really fun adventure flick. It's more adventure than horror. Let's let's just face yeah. it. Damn um, nerds. And you know, there's a lot. There's some other good stuff, but it was mostly it was mostly a year of just really terrible, terrible sequels. There's so <laughs> many bad, so many bad sequels. Like, I was just going through a list. It was like you are oh. you are not a fan of Alien Three, <laughs> or The Gate Two, or uh, Witchcraft Four, or Waxwork Two, or oh god, I, I, I do not know any of these movies. <laughs> I kind no. of like Waxwork Two. Actually, <laughs> I think it's 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 got its moments. Uh, all right. <laughs> But okay, for okay for genre films, okay, that sounds like a bad year. But you know, you also had Reservoir Dogs come out that year, uh, which in itself, I well, Reservoir Dogs good, good film, but it's I don't think like Tarantino really showed his true potential until Pulp Fiction. I think everyone just kind of you know, I mean, obviously, I can't understate how influential Reservoir Dogs was itself. But I feel like it wasn't until Pulp Fiction that everyone realized, oh shit, this guy, this guy is for real. This is a, you know, this is a real filmmaker. Yeah, you had. Um, I mean, speaking of great genre films, I think Under Siege is a is a wonderful action film. And it's <laughs> Die probably, Hard on a Boat. Yeah, Die Hard on a Boat. Uh, <laughs> one of Steven Seagal's only like really good films. Probably yeah, one of that in the sequel. Biggest oh, hits. Dark yeah. Territory. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. Let's see. What's, but you had you know great good things. You had Glengarry Glenn Ross. You know, oh. that, you know everyone loves that opening. Uh, Last of the Mohicans. I mean. Daniel Day Lewis. There were. Yeah, it was a big. Um, we were That's Batman movie. Oh yeah, Batman uh, Returns. Batman Returns. <laughs> Batman Returns. There was a sense of. I'm gonna get email for that. <laughs> no, no, no. Well, it's a be- certainly the yeah the best of that Batman. Uh, but yeah, I probably I probably would put it up against um, Dark Knight, which oh, I oh, really like. I prefer yeah. it. Yeah. <laughs> it's camping. Yeah, you know, I, I like I like my comic books, uh, my comic book movies a little a little silly. What you mean, uh, Batman and, versus Superman didn't do it for you? Well, <laughs> that one. I mean, I, 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 you know, it's not a good movie, but I like it. <laughs> yeah. oh, have you Have you seen the three hour? Cut no, I haven't. Uh, I haven't had time to subject myself to that yet. Yeah. Um, there are other better things to watch, I'm sure. <laughs> Yeah, oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
but it was a it was an interesting time um two for westerns it seems like they were coming through a bit of a resurgence you had last of the mohicans which is you know, pseudo western but just two years earlier you had dances with wolves win best picture and funny enough unforgiven marked the third and final time that a western movie had won the uh won the, the the big oscar the last the the only other one before those two which came in rapid succession was um i believe uh, uh Cimarron? Cimarron? Cimarron, which was in 1931 so wow. so despite you know hollywood pumping out just tons of westerns and despite for whatever reason them not giving the academy award to the searchers or shane it was so 60-some-odd years before they finally gave another Western Best Picture. And even then, and we're going to talk about it when we get into it, obviously they should have given it to Goodfellas uh, <laughs> that year. But So Unforgiven is the last Western, I think, really even to be nominated. You can call No Country for Old Men a sort of new noir Western, but this is the last one that takes place actually in the West that was, I believe, even nominated and certainly the last one that... One so that is 1992 in a nutshell. We're going to take another quick break, gather our thoughts, and when we come back, we're going to get into all of the themes and uh, stuff of Unforgiven. So do stick around. And welcome back, everybody. Now is the time to talk of things unforgiven. Chris, for a little refresher, can you remind the audience uh, just what the movie is all about? Sure. I'll I'll try to keep this brief, but um, essentially the movie starts with uh, a a prostitute being uh, cut up by one of her uh, customers because she uh, laughed at the the size of his uh, we'll say member I guess I don't want to get you guys an explicit <laughs> tag or anything um, and the other prostitutes who work in this house of leisure uh, pool their money and they offer a reward for to anyone who will go out and kill the the man who did it and his partner uh, so this young guy named Schofield Kid. Uh, goes out and he finds this old gunslinger named William Money, who's played by Clint Eastwood. Uh, William Money is is getting up there in age. Um, I'm trying to remember how how old Eastwood would have been around this time. He was probably in his 50s, 60s, something like that. Um, so he's he's up there, but and he is now older and trying to mend his wicked ways because he married this woman who 
sort of tamed him. Uh, she helped him to stop drinking, uh, helped him to sort of realize the, the error of his violent ways. And, uh, and they had a couple of kids together, but then she, uh, she died, uh, because she had tuberculosis, I believe it was, or, or she had some, uh, disease. So William Money at first says, no, I'm not going to do this. But then he has a change of heart because he realizes he's not really cut out for farm life. Goes out, finds his old partner, Ned, uh, who is played by Morgan Freeman. And they join the Schofield kid to go and hunt down these guys. Meanwhile, back in the town, you have the sheriff of the town, uh, Little Bill Daggett, who is played by Gene Hackman in a really, really great uh, performance. And Gene Hackman, or sorry, Little Bill has been dealing with uh, other bounty hunters who have come into the town to collect the reward, including uh, English Bob, the great, uh, is it late great Richard yeah, Harris? Yeah, the late yes, Richard, yeah. <laughs> the late great Richard Harris for, for younger listeners, uh, the, the original Dumbledore. Um, <laughs> and his biographer, played by Saul Rubinek, uh, W.W. Beauchamp, uh, they ride into town. Little Bill arrests them both, uh, beats the crap out of English Bob and sends him on his way. Uh, but then William, Ned, and the Schofield kid come into town, uh, and they run afoul of Little Bill. Uh, and uh, William Money gets sick. The, the prostitutes help to bring him back to health. And then uh, he finds out that little Bill has killed Ned, spoiler alert, uh, and this sort of sets him off uh, on, a, on a rampage, essentially, uh, through the, the whorehouse uh, to get revenge for what little Bill did. Uh, and that's essentially the, the plot of the film. That, that is a very thorough uh, explanation of the ins and outs of Unforgiven, and uh, I guess we're going to start at the top. Um, gentlemen gonna open this up the title unforgiven yeah. uh i was gonna ask you that ah, I'm, ask, I'm asking you i make i, uh, I ask the question here what, uh what what does the title refer to in this movie and how does it how does the movie play to that theme or does not play to that theme how successful is it do you want me to take this, Alex? Yeah, because yeah, I'm still torn on what it means. I mean, I feel like it could be a whole bunch of things. I, I, I am still not quite convinced what uh, what what Eastwood meant by it. So. Yeah, well, I mean, I'm not sure I 100% know, but but my thoughts on it are that the whole movie is kind of a deconstruction of the the Western myth that has been built up. I mean, so much of the American identity is rooted in that uh, idea of Western expansion. You know, when we when we came here and then we started uh, taming the land and, and doing the whole Manifest Destiny thing and, and uh, basically just imposing our will on this, this new frontier. And this movie is, is so... Uh, much of a deconstruction of that idea. Like like I said earlier, it's a demythologization. It's taking that myth and just sort of crumbling it down. And Eastwood's character, he's essentially, I mean, 
in essence, he is the man with no name in this movie. Uh, much older. He's the guy from from the Leone films. Uh, after he has lived through all those adventures, and now he's sort of settled down. That's the funny um, thing is that you don't you won't recognize him as such in the beginning, though. It's right, only until right. the very end that you're like, oh yeah, that that you know, this is what kind of happened to this character when he yeah. did try to. Yeah. When he he has try a, to... he has a great he has a great entrance is that he's not the badass in the in the serape and in the hat. He's oh, no. you know he's like chasing down pigs and he's yep. he's not winning. <laughs> no, he falls into the mud more than once. He he looks beaten <laughs> down and, and and pathetic. Um, yeah, yeah it's uh, it's fr- from from that from that very that very moment you're like, wow, this is. This is not. This is certainly not your father's Eastwood. Yeah, and I think part of what's going on is that character has, you know, because he settled down, he's trying to make peace with his violent past. You know, there's so many times in the movie where he's talking about the things that he did, like that scene where he talks about how he shot a guy's teeth through the back of his head and all this stuff. And he's like, he didn't deserve that, and it's like he's trying to forgive himself, but he can't. He 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 can't totally make peace with it that's why he goes back out with the schofield kid to to get that bounty that's why he goes uh, uh at the end and gets revenge for what happens to ned it's like he can't reconcile that violent past with the guy he wa- he thinks he should be to honor the memory of his wife and he keeps um, trying to too yeah he keeps exactly. mentioning he mentions his wife you know more than a few times where you know i don't do that anymore i don't drink anymore that he even blames it on the whiskey at one yep. point right. uh which is kind of amusing um uh, you know just just anything to you know and, he, it, and and during the film too you're like this guy's just trying to convince himself he, you realize that he's just saying it yeah. out loud to, to try to try to prove to himself that he's not that person even though you you, you could sort of still tell that it's under there and you do eventually find out that yes right. it was under yeah. it wasn't very far yeah, yeah I, so yeah. I think well, I was gonna say I just think par- a big part of it is 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 for him to be able to be at peace and to to uh, accept his new life, he has to forgive himself. But ultimately, he can't. That's why at the end of the film, and I don't know how many how many spoilers we want to go into for this, you know, it's nearly tw- thirty tw- year old film. Tw- yeah, yeah, yeah. Old, so. yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but when you know you get that end text about how his wife's mother comes to see him he's gone he's he's left with the kids he's just disappeared it's like he can't live that life because he can't forgive himself for the things he did in his past so he's constantly kind of running from that past now the interesting thing i i uh noticed that uh it was originally the i don't know if you guys know that read about the original title uh, people's originally called it the cut whore killings and uh, which would have been a completely different film I, i feel like it could have been you know it could have been just a standard I don't know if it could be like a revenge film, but much more of a standard Westing. And it was originally called the Cut Heart Killings, and then it was originally called the, the William Munning, uh, William Money Killings as well. Mm-hmm. Which, which either one of those would have, I feel like, completely changed the tone of the film and the the theme of the film. Um, you know, it, obviously, it is about the the killer that you know the the guy. It's not even the the killer, but the killing of the uh, the person who uh, who does cut up the uh, the women. Yeah. Um, but that's not it's not about that at all. It's yeah, well, even that, even that killing is played so interestingly because, yeah. you know, money shoots the kid uh, in the stomach. And it's not even the right. kid that, that, that cut up the prostitute. It's the partner. It's, right. Yeah, the partner uh, that kind of got sucked into it. Uh, yeah. And, right. who's, and, who, who, yeah, who, who's just part of the bounty at this point. He right. didn't really yeah. do anything. He, 
he well he was there he did help her i mean it's not like he's completely innocent but at the same time he did try to make amends and you feel like you know they did try to make it as as painful for you as possible that uh you know that he tried to help them out and give him his own pony at one point uh at the at the whorehouse and they all you know throw mud at him and make him go away um but yeah he yeah they and then the fact that uh, also his friend ned who who shoots the horse and then can't bring himself to kill anymore which is kind of interesting too that his character is has kind of moved on from what money can't money can't move on is uh, yeah but even then there's like like that sort of stripping away of that idea of the cold you know steely-eyed killer that they establish in movies like the good the bad and the ugly and a fistful of dollars and all that because when he shoots the kid in the stomach you know the kid's laying there bleeding out from this gut shot he's crying uh, and he's crying i just i'm so thirsty i'm so thirsty and then william money is just like just get him a drink of water i'm not gonna shoot and he (laughs) he basically just lets them help this kid Uh, so you're even stripping that away yeah it's yeah yeah it 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 totally takes it's this the violence in this film is it's so not pleasant like you know sometimes violence is it's a lot of it's fun to watch you know it's oh. you know especially with eastwood you know blowing away guys is you know you know even like outlaw josie whale or pale rider or some of that like it's like satisfying there i take i took no satisfaction in anyone dying in this movie like even even the great shine off at the end with eastwood's deserves got nothing to do with it you're like oh, this is just awful to watch but i think that is the point of the movie and i i read somewhere that they didn't actually set out to make it like that but i think much like showing a war movie nowadays like you're gonna tread into anti-war anti-violence territory just by showing things as frankly as you do, and it's, it's yeah. Who it, is it that said that there's no way to make a, a pro-war war movie? You know, it's, it's, it's kind it's of Truffaut. Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah it's the same you can't make an anti-war film. Yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. It's the same thing here, though. It's it's yeah. When you show the truth of what, what it was like, yeah, it's not people just getting blown away and cool. And it's not like the Man with No Name trilogy, which which does have really really cool badass moments where you just you can't help but be you know excited by the violence it's not like wrong that. three coffins right? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> right 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 it's nothing like that here it's no django or anything like that it's yeah. not you know yeah. it's um, it's it's a guy getting shot in the outhouse yeah just like there's no there's no glory in that yeah and he who who is horrified yeah that we find out that the kid uh um the schofield what's his name schofield, schofield kid. Kid. uh yeah. The self-titled Schofield kid, uh, who is he keeps bragging about how many men he's killed because he's kind of looking up to this old legend, this old Wild West that that is not really there anymore, uh, or it's uh, you know basically it's on its way out. Which which is what, another thing I find so fascinating about this movie. It's it's because I had I had a great teacher in in, uh, in high school who uh, we had a film class and we we were talking about we actually he talked about this and mentioned how the Wild West that we know was only you know like a twenty year period or however many years it was. It was such a tiny little fraction of our of our nation's history, but the mythology behind it is is something that's going to persevere forever, um, and that's kind of what this movie all is. And that's I, I like the story of the uh, the guy writing the um, the Penny Dreadfuls about the uh, about about them too, because it's that's that's what this movie is. It's about the, the this myth that's being built up and about these people that are writing about it and how kind of the uh, the mythology is being written by the uh, the winners too. Because you know that money's going to get a great story at the end of this. At the end of this movie, he's going to get a great story written up by uh, by the guy who asks him in the middle of his spree, "How many? You know, who did you shoot first? Did you kill that guy? Did you, you know, did you aim yeah. at the 
a bigger threat, you know? <laughs> yeah. We could, well, uh, yeah, Beauchamp was just a great audience cipher. He was like, like, oh, yeah, that's like he was enthralled by this. Like, yeah. yeah. Like, oh, wait, yeah. who did who did he switch shoot first? Like, that was that yeah. was cool. Let me see that again. And it's like, no, that's yeah. you're missing, missing yeah. the point there. Yeah, and I Saul love that he just jumps from from you know legend to legend over the course of the film. Uh, there's English Bob, and he's like, oh, he's not actually that you know that the duck of death. Yeah, the duck of death. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, little Bill, who's just a per- he's so amazingly sadistic. Mm-hmm. Uh, Dean Hackman is so great in this film. I, I I love his performance. It's so sadistic and so and because he he's one of the few that realizes that yeah his ways are are almost done and. He's got to he's got to hold on to it whatever way he can. He, he knows that he feels it slipping from his grip, and he he's got to got to try to hold on to it. He keeps trying to thrust guns into people's hands so he he can shoot them yeah. and justify a couple more murders or something like that. Um, but so, uh, yeah, for some reason it, sound, uh, it sounds very relevant for today and uh, yeah, <laughs> police. Yeah, sadly relevant. Sadly, sadly relevant. <laughs> but um, actually, on Gene Hackman, you know, it's a, it's a phenomenal performance. He's just just one of the best. But in a, is there a, po- a point where Gene Hackman's character, despite his methods, he's kind of right? And in another film, wouldn't he kind of be the good guy in the scenario? <laughs> protecting the town kind of in yeah, a way in a way like leaving he is the, technically take... yeah he's tra- technically trying to do uh i mean in his own way i mean he kicks he kicks uh english bob throughout the town you know he just beats the shit out of him right. and i uh, just not you know uh locks him up and uh you know his his uh with his iron fist uh, uh sheriffing yeah. well that's and that's the thing too that that whole idea of the iron fist you yeah. know he he is, he is right to a degree because you know early in the film uh after the the one cowboy cuts up the the prostitute uh the the punishment is the 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 whipping and then to give some ponies to the to the uh, proprietor of the whorehouse it's like he's not going to hang these guys for what they did Doesn't even though the, the other prostitute yeah, no he, he ends up not doing that yeah but i mean that was the the punishment originally but what's interesting is, you know, he's got this edict that's posted out front of the of the town where anybody who comes in has to turn in their weapons. You know, yeah. nobody can have guns in the town as a way to keep it safe. But him and his deputies, they all have guns. And it's like he's able to uh, maintain order just because he sets him up. He sets himself up as sort of the 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 king of this little fiefdom that he's carved out for himself, where you know he's building his terrible house that he's he, you know using his bad carpentry skills and crooked house to build his castle. <laughs> yeah, his crooked house that leaks. Oh, and, the leaks, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but to a degree, I mean, I, he he does just he wants to keep the people safe. You know, like like there's the scene that really that always really sticks out to me is when. Uh, Strawberry Alice, the the woman who is sort of like the leader of the the gang of prostitutes yeah, in the, the film, the madam, yeah, the madam. Uh, you know, he he comes in and he basically tells her, it's like you can't offer this money to these guys because they're going to be worse to you than the, the two guys you're trying to kill if you can't pay them. Uh, and it's like he's he becomes protective. He becomes. Uh, uh, somebody who's looking out for the people in his town, even as he's doing it in this sort of like iron fisted manner, like Alex was saying. And his house is kind of the perfect metaphor for how uh, his town, ta- his handling of the town is going. Just yeah. all over, it's all falling apart. Yeah, you know, it's not going to last very long. 
and it doesn't. <laughs> no, it, you know, it does. It doesn't. And I was. I'm so impressed by the the leaky house uh, scenes, just because it seems like such a ridiculously obvious metaphor. You're like, yeah. <laughs> oh, come on, man. I get it, but the way Eastwood shoots it, and they and Hackman just sells every single bit of it. Just you know, he's talking about you know uh, how you know. The, the way things were and how to shoot people to solve Rubinek. It's it just like that, that, uh, that really works. It, 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 you never, it, attention is never really drawn to it. It just becomes like so many things in this movie, just part of the background that you can see and appreciate the more times you, you watch, you watch the movie. I, I, I think it's fantastic that way. No, I would agree with you. I think it's a nice kind of subtle, you know, it's heavy-handed, but it's it's heavy-handed in a subtle kind of way, which is a weird thing to say. But <laughs> it's not like going back to one of your previous episodes. It's not like The Departed, where you know the rat stands for obviousness. Right. It's just, <laughs> yeah. it's something that if you're not really looking for it for that metaphor, you might not even pick up on it. Um, it's just sort of integrated into the film so well. Uh, it just becomes part of the the whole uh, dressing of of the film itself. Yeah, and I have to say, seeing this as you know, I, cause I saw this you know when it first came out when I was what, ten or you know whatever, way too young to be watching this. A couple of years, you know, or twelve, thirteen, whatever it was. Um, yeah, you babies. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. No, it it, um, it uh it definitely plays differently because I remember it being like, wow, this is such a cool movie, you know, kind of thing, you know, almost you know. Focusing on the revenge thing, I, I definitely read into it a lot more. But yeah, like you said, some of it is a little bit obvious. But I, I, I just love, uh, and also I love uh, that, that scene too. I think that's also the scene where he really starts trying to. He he realizes that's almost his chance to uh, to make his own mythology. To he starts he really takes over from English Bob. Well, it starts in the prison scene where he starts you know just showing you know talking about what what you know what the West was like kind of right. uh, actually uh, like. Yeah, yeah, and and he just he he kind of jumps into that, and it, it's 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 so it is subtle, but in a way, but it's he does he does like really, you can see he starts really enjoying it and really enjoying the idea that he's gonna live on through through these words, um, even though eventually money is gonna gonna do it because because of his actions. <laughs> Which I also find really interesting too, because it's one of those like classic Western things. It's like the, the gunfight at the OK Corral, which is like this legendary gunfight that took place all of thirty seconds that we yeah. talk about, you know, we know about to this day. And it's only because somebody wrote about it in the what was the nineteen thirties, uh, and then they made a movie about it, and a couple movies about it. You know, the nineteen fifties they made the. Uh, the gunfight, uh, what year was that? I forgot, 1950 something. They made the gunfight at the OK Corral, and the only reason we know it as that is because of the movie, and because of the books, and because of all the stuff. And it's like this this thing that nobody ever would have heard about or really cared about this minor gunfight. Not minor, I mean, I'm saying, minor, but, but as far as these things go, it's, it's a 30 seconds of in, in a day, <laughs> you know, how many, 100 years ago. Um, but it's kind of it's kind of amazing that, you know, just, just because of the, almost the power of uh, words and mythology and. I do love the movie for this because it is all it's all about that. I really feel like it is. Yeah. I mean, that's one thing I, I wanted to talk about uh, just a little bit ago is this idea that, you know, especially on in film for for 60, 70 years, we spent so Hollywood spent so much time 
creating this myth and reinforcing it through popular culture. You know, it was like drawing on things uh, that that happened on these real events, like you know, on early, really early, like silent westerns. You had. Uh, a lot of actual cowboys who were coming in as consultants and and helping them to make the films, but we were what we were getting, what we as as like the mass audience was getting, was this filtered version of the American <laughs> myth essentially that was being built up through these films. And then uh, you know, Unforgiven comes in and basically says, "Nope, it's not how it was." And and what I think was really interesting was Eastwood. You know, he got a a taste of that when he was doing those spaghetti westerns because those spaghetti westerns, as cool as they are, uh, you know, and as much as they are great about like building up this myth, they were also a form of deconstruction. They were outsiders. You know, they were these Italian guys, these Spanish guys, all these other guys who were coming in and looking at America and sort of giving their impression of mm-hmm. our own sort of identity. And Eastwood was taking that and sort of putting it into a, a true American Western uh, for like, you know, one of the first times in a long time when Unforgiven came out, because mm-hmm. Westerns, like you guys had said, were on the wane for so long. And this was sort of the, a little bit of a resurgence in that in the early 90s there. Uh, so it was really interesting to me when I first saw it, because I was a little older than you guys. I think I was in I think I was 20 when this came out mm. um, or no, I was 18 when this came out. So <laughs> I was I wasn't really into Westerns at the time. I was I grew up more of like a sci fi fantasy and horror kid. Uh, so this this and Dances with Wolves, because I still I still like Dances with Wolves and and Tombstone. And, and you know, those were the movies that kind of turned me around on the Western overall. But this one has always sort of stuck out to me just because of how, how different it felt from other Westerns. You know, the violence, the, the shootout at the end, it's like, he's clumsy. He's not, you know, just like gunning down everybody. He's missing and they're all missing him and his gun misfires and all that other stuff. The only time that it's really cool is when he's walking out and he just shoots that guy, (laughs) you know, with the shotgun uh, as he's walking past him. And then, then that's it. Yeah. Um, otherwise, you're, you're watching it and it feels really uh, disjointed and, yeah. and and like they're having all sorts of problems. So it's, it's that half, always half really, luck. It's it's yeah. not. It's, yeah. That's the thing. It's like it all just you know that the writer was right there in the room with him. That's like one of those things. Like I don't you know nobody would have been talking about that particular gunfight if it weren't for the fact that the writer was there under a corpse uh, that, he, yeah. that he shot. So that's uh, what I find so interesting about it. But yeah, there is no cool moment. Even himself, like the whole throughout the whole film, he's missing shots. He's not. He's not a. He's not a good shot. He's better at a shotgun. He's not good with a pistol. He's not good with a, like a long rifle. Um, you kind of. That's that's kind of the whole thing too. It's just that this whole breaking down of this character. He's not like this. This you know, gunslinger who's just popping out a pistol and shooting the guy between the eyes. He's, it's sloppy. It's messy. It's it's a really it's a really uh, brutal ending, especially for a Hollywood film in '92. Yeah. It's it's a it's a pretty brutal ending. It's definitely definitely um, people we're gonna spoil that a little bit, but there the gunfight <laughs> at the end lasts all of what do you guys say less than a minute? Same thing, uh, yeah. It's, it's, it's really like, short. Yeah, yeah. and uh, yeah. it all builds up to that one second. It just explodes, and then that's it. Yeah, but, and oh, it's it's yeah. it's a great buildup. It's a oh great yeah, too. and uh, it's Eastwood. Eastwood enacts his revenge. But it's not satisfying. He literally, and, you, uh, and thankfully you don't see it. But he literally blows uh, 
uh, uh, little, Bill. uh, little Bill's head off with a shotgun. Yeah. Uh, I don't yeah. see how, how, point, how that could point be. Point blank range. Yeah. Like, he's yeah. right. like what, got it what, right up to his face. Oh, God. What was Little Bill? Little Bill has a great last words, too. I forgot what it was. Um, I'll see you in hell, was, William Money. <laughs> well, yeah. something like, I'm just, I'm going to... I don't deserve this. I'm building a house. Yeah, and that's yeah, why yeah. Eastwood is like, deserves got nothing to do with yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and you realize that's kind of the summation of it. Like, no. Yeah. It, it has nothing this, to do with it. Yeah. Like, no um, primal reason to any of this violence. Right. Like, it just, uh, it just is. Yeah, like in the uh, like in the Deer Hunter, the previous episode I, we talked about, like, the violence just happened. It was just right. random, unlucky bullshit that you can play against for as long as you think you can but you're going to lose eventually and that's that's the nature that's the nature of it it's uh and it's oh god the the violence in this movie is is really tough um i you know, i guess i have a question that i've been actually wrestling with for a while it's related to the movie somewhat and it's the question of can people ever really change and how does Unforgiven address that move? Address that idea or question? You have any any thoughts on that? Um, well, I mean, I think there that people have the, the potential to change, but they have to they have to one they have to want to change, and two they have to be able to uh, you know if they've made mistakes in the past they have to be able to forgive themselves for those mistakes. What I was talking about earlier. And William Money, he wants to change, but he still can't quite reconcile the things he did in the past. You know, it's each time he kind of talks about the people that he killed in the past, it's like he's trying to work through the the guilt that he still feels over that. He may not have felt guilt at the time, but once he met his wife and she sort of uh, helped him to see how this violence was impacting him, how the drink was impacting him, that's when he started to maybe have those feelings that what he did was wrong. And he's he's having a hard time coming to terms with that. He's having a hard time letting it go. Um, and it's and it's it's that that tendency to sort of keep living in the past and keep wrestling with those issues keeps driving him to violence. And I think ultimately that's why he finally just, you know, when Ned gets killed, he just goes in and and wipes out everybody. Uh, And he has that great line at the end. You know, it's like, if anybody tries to shoot me when I come out, I'll kill your wife. I'll kill your pets, all this other stuff. Uh, It's like he's finally just saying to himself, this is the person that I probably am. Uh, And even though, you know, he leaves with the kids, who knows what he did with the kids? Yeah, that's what I say. We always wonder, you know, like, what is that? Was he ashamed of what he did? He was trying to, you know, make a new life somewhere else. Like, what what exactly did happen? But it's, you know, one of those things that we'll always wonder, (laughs) you know, what what happened when he went back. Was he completely, would he try to to go back to his old ways or, you know, what happened? But I think Ned in this, I think Ned in this movie is a good, like a, a illustration of the fact of the idea that people can change because yeah. Ned used to be just as violent as William Money, but then when he gets into the shootout, he he can't it's shoot right. the gun. It, it like yeah. almost makes him physically ill uh, because he has left that stuff in the past. It's like he was able to uh, come to terms with it and and put that you know put that on the the shelf, whereas William Money can't quite do that. 
It's it's interesting though, especially maybe in your in your masculinity class, is that that the only thing that um the only thing that changes these men though is a woman. Uh, that both of them uh kind of settle down with a lady, and and that that's the only way that uh it's kind of that old trope of uh you know the the, the only thing that calm down a, a bad man is a good woman kind of thing. Um, I can change him. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. I can change. Yeah, exactly. So, but and that's you know, kind of, yeah, it's all about that. Cause yeah, I mean, he talks about uh, Ned even talks about uh. Yeah, you know, his wife is the only reason I think that he did settle down. It worked for him. I don't know why. Uh... It may just be them trying to rationalize. <laughs> yeah. Right. <laughs> you know, like Ned is is using her to rationalize his own sort of ability to move on. Right. And William Money his is trying friend. to do that, too. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, like, like exactly. Uh, you know, it wasn't me. It was, I'm just trying to settle down for the lady kind of thing. Yeah, right. exactly. <laughs> but, but, but then again, Ned isn't, uh, you know, everyone is very flawed in this movie. Like, Ned, he's sleeping with the whores as a form mm-hmm. of payment for it like ev- like everybody is wearing a sort of mask in this the Schofield kid yeah. is wearing his bravado and yeah. uh, <laughs> uh, you know wild bill is uh using his uh his the, his 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 badge as a sort of way to brutalize people um will M- money keeps telling himself he's a good man and so on and so forth it's a it's a great it's a uh Every, but by the end, everyone's true face, I think, is revealed. You know, money's a killer. Bill's just a sadistic jerk. Uh, Schofield kid is, is he's not a coward, but he is not. A, he's not. A, he's not a killer. And it's um, he's just a kid who doesn't know what he wants to do. And he, he looking up to all these people and didn't realize that the legend, you know, that the legends weren't weren't true you know basically that that he that he, he he read all these novels and he listened to all these stories and then he wanted to make his own name and ends up uh, finding it's not all that well yeah. here i can get i can get a little uh, academic for a moment oh, but yeah. in, <laughs> in masculinity studies there's this idea that we have what's called hegemonic masculinity it's like the, the socially accepted way of being a male mm-hmm. uh so at that time you know william money and ned would have been sort of the hegemonic ideal or at least mm-hmm. the past versions of them when they were these you know hard drinking hard living gunslingers who let their actions speak louder than words and so within that hierarchy, you have what's called dominant masculinity. That's the hegemonic ideal. And then you have complicit masculinity. Dominant masculinity is all the people who actually possess those traits. Complicit masculinity means that the men, you know, the vast majority of men don't possess those traits, but they can pretend to and gain all the benefits of that dominant hegemonic ideal. So, <laughs> So the Schofield kid, yeah, exactly. exactly. Or George W. Bush, or you know, any manner of president who has uh, uh, appropriated a cowboy identity uh, to curry favor with the American people. But that's what the Schofield kid is doing, essentially. I mean, he's he's appropriating this uh, persona of the tough, hard living, hard drinking uh, gunslinger who has no emotions, that sort of thing. What, what was that? And when he can't even see, when he, yeah. he's got all these things and, you know, he probably would be better suited to another kind of life. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But, but that's he, how he's compensating for not being able to see is right. by having that tough persona. So that's right. exactly what, what's going on with that character. It's definitely I, I love that character for that reason because it is kind of a it just shows you and he is disillusioned at the end he, uh, in a way. I don't know if he, he will, you know, reform his ways, but uh, yeah, uh, he I, definitely has a moment. I read I read somewhere that in the original version of the script, he actually went and 
drown himself or something like oh, that. See, so, I mean, that that would make sense too because it, it definitely it fits with the the character because he's just you know after shooting a man uh, taking a dump, yeah, <laughs> you know, like, no, like, there's no there's nothing that could be said that's good about that. Like, right. okay, he, he killed somebody who did a horrible thing, but he, the way he killed him, there's no there's no glory in that. There's no there's no nothing he can. There's no stories that can be written about him. You can't uh, even, you can't even claim self defense in this right case. right. Like, there was shot him, like you've shot him dead to rights and yeah. It was terrible. Yeah. But I but uh ultimately I'm glad they didn't show that. I like the uh yeah. the ending that the Schofield kid got, you know, that maybe there was a better life for him and hopefully he could overcome the bad actions of his youth and try mm. and reach towards some sort of uh there's a, there's a sequel. goodness. <laughs> yeah. 30 years later. <laughs> the Schofield kid. kid. Don't don't give Hollywood the idea, man. <laughs> Just don't. Although, you know, though Unforgiven 2 was good, but Unforgiven 3, as you said, you know, not Metallica's <laughs> best work. <laughs> oh, God. Ugh, no. Okay. No. All right, well, okay. At least they didn't try to rhyme Unforgiven 3 in the song as they did with the Unforgiven 2. <laughs> was it Electric Boogaloo? What was <laughs> no, 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 no. Oh, no. From a kill. No, which, which album was that? Load? Uh-oh, reload? Oh, oh yeah. Metallica had uh, Unforgiven 2 where they rhyme you with 2. <laughs> Well, hey, that, 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 that Lars or James, whoever whoever wrote it, guys. Uh, so we're so we're coming to the end, guys. Um, is this? I keep coming back to this idea of this being the Watchmen, the Watchmen of the Western genre. In that, you really don't. You didn't have to make any more comics after Watchmen. Obviously, obviously <laughs> they did, but they haven't made a lot of westerns. Is this like the last true western? Is it? Do we need? Do we need more? Um, should yeah, we? Should no, we have more? We should have more. I don't think that's. that's, that's I mean, it definitely closes the book on that character or that uh, that that st- you know stereotype. Like it, it was. More, I think it was more for his own personal, uh, you know, arc. Uh, the the man with no name. Uh, it definitely closed the book on his his films. I don't think anyone's going to ever you know accept him as a an old ass uh, cowboy anymore. Um, he kind of. Right. I don't. I, but you know, I don't think it just stops every. Any any need for westerns? I feel like there's there's still stories to be told. Yeah, I, I mean, I don't I don't know that it's like the the you're closing the book on the genre, but so much as it is kind of closing the book on that sort of mythologized ideal that had been built up by Hollywood for so long. Because I mean, even a movie like uh, Tombstone, which is pretty pulpy and feels a lot like uh, the old westerns. It does have those sort of deconstructive moments, uh, like like when uh, uh, Bill Paxton's character gets shot and you see them trying to dig the bullet out of his back. And it's like it's really showing you the impact, the effect of this kind of violence or like when uh, Powers Booth's character shoots uh, Curly Bill by accident while he's tripping on peyote and stuff. And <laughs> and, you know, he you know, he didn't mean to do that. Uh, but it was just sort of showing you the, the the effects of this kind of violence and this kind of lifestyle. And I mean, you see it still in, in stuff like Hateful Eight. You know, Hateful Eight, um, I think, was is on par with Unforgiven in terms of just how it's deconstructing not just the Western, but the American mytholo- mythologized identity. Because you know, the thing the, the thing with Hateful Eight is we're seeing just how terrible things were for, for people of color and women during that time in that film. Uh, so I, I think there, there's definitely a place for 
the Western. Um, and I definitely think there's there's a you know room for both versions for the deconstructive versions and for the sort of more straightforward versions. Um, it's just they have to be. I think they have to be done well. Um, you know, like a movie like Open Range, I think is is a really fantastic western that harkens back to a lot of uh, the older kinds of, of pre deconstructing uh, deconstruction type of westerns. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, that's a. Oh, I forgot about that one. That's a good one and and obviously a lot of the work coming out of um australia you have the proposition i think the assassination of jesse james by the coward robert ford was another yeah. another great deconstructive look at the idea of the american west and specifically the the heroes of the american west and how that came to be well and we're getting a lot of uh, uh westerns out of asia especially you know we've got like from japan there was sukiyaki western django there was the good the bad the weird uh there was tears oh, yeah. of the black tiger from thailand um the the list just kind of goes on and on and on there there have been at least 10 or 12 westerns from being produced outside of the united states just within the last you know five six yeah. years yeah including a 2013 remake of unforgiven uh, which I unfortunately didn't get a chance to see. I was yeah, I know. Track I still need copy to see down, But I, I'm told it's essentially the same movie. And considering uh, the um, the borrowing of you know between Western uh, you know American westerns and the samurai films, I would be very I am very curious to see how how it how it plays in the reverse role reversal there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because yeah, was it did uh, did they make Samurai movies? Uh, no, it was yeah. The Seven Samurai. Then it was Magnificent Seven. That's, yeah, that's, but Seven then, Samurai was Kurosawa was really heavily influenced by guys like John Ford and Howard Hawks, just in how he composed shots and and framed action and and did his editing and things. So uh, you can kind of see that sort of what they, they call the transcultural or transnational influence go, where it's going back hey, and forth. I know and, that word. You, you talked yeah, about Yeah, it. <laughs> like transcending the boundaries and things. Uh, but it's, yeah, there's been like a really big cultural flow for a long time between between the samurai film and the Western the film, Western. even even as they're not like a kind of a one-to-one thing, but they, they definitely have a lot of overlap. Absolutely. Okay, we are definitely running out of time. So guys, uh, final question, Unforgiven. Did it deserve to win Best Picture? Yeah, I don't. I, yeah, I don't think there's any question, right? I mean, I, I don't know. I don't think anyone's going to disagree with that. I think it was the right choice that year. Yeah, I would say yes. I mean, like I said, this is tough one year. of my. Yeah, it's a tough year, and tough it's a, year. every film in there was a really solid choice. Um, but I think this one just stood head and shoulders, just because of the thematic content and, and everything that was, and, and how it was such a, a big comment. Uh, not just on Eastwood's career, but on the Western genre as a whole. I think it's it's definitely the one that deserved it. Okay. And you will hear no complaint from me. Absolutely agree with you guys 100%. This is, uh, a, this is definitely one of the strongest entries we've had, I, I think, personally, in the what, 10 films. No, nine films that we've watched so far. Uh, it's... Uh, I, kind of just want to go watch it again having listened to this great conversation having this great conversation with you guys so i'd love to take what i've learned learned here and apply it to the apply it to this movie once more um so ladies and gentlemen this has been the oscar oscar watch podcast episode of unforgiven we thank you for listening alex if people want to get in touch with you where can they find you uh, they can find me on the internet, Alex Raviello, Twitter, website, whatever, you know, whatever, what have you. Just figure out the, how many vowels are in my name and uh, you know.
you'll find me. <laughs> Love the enthusiasm. And Chris, yep. <laughs> uh, do tell us about Pop Culture Lens again. Give okay, us- so Pop Culture Lens, just, uh, you know, we're, we're doing academic, theoretical type of deconstruction of different pop culture, but, but doing it in a way that anybody can understand it. We break down all the terms, all the jargon, uh, and, and try to give you uh, a, a real solid understanding of what it is uh, we're, we're, what kind of theoretical lenses we're using to look at, at different pop culture texts. Okay. And, and uh, like I said, Podbean, Twitter, Pop Culture Lens, uh, Facebook, iTunes, all that. We're, we're all over the web. All right. Fantastic. Definitely like and subscribe uh, the Pop Culture Lens on iTunes. It's really fantastic. They got some great episodes. I definitely would. I definitely. I, I love your episode on They Live because that's one of my all time favorite movies. It's just fantastic. And I loved hearing you guys' thoughts on that. It was, uh, it was very wonderful. Very wonderful. Uh, we are Oscar Watch. You can find us uh, on Twitter and Instagram at Oscar Watch Pod. Find us on um, Facebook. Like, like and subscribe on iTunes. If you have a question, comment, criticism or you just want to say hi write us an email at oscarwatchpodcast at gmail.com alex or chris whichever does one do some of you have dice available (laughs) i brought them Uh, i I brought them back (laughs) i I don't know if i'll need to do it i don't know if you've decided next weekend but uh Uh, yeah you want to do the yeah do it let's 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 roll the thing let's see what's next week uh we got uh seven ninety seven Two. <gasps> Whoa. Do Go way back. The Broadway the Melody. Broadway Melody. Oh. Wow, can we, we'll see if we can find that one. We will see I've that. actually seen that. Uh, yeah, it's pretty good. I went through a phase watching like old musicals from that period. Oh, it's um, a musical. Ah, I think, yeah, that one's... I'm so excited. <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a pretty good one. So oh. I, I, I give it a thumbs up. <laughs> well, okay oh, then. There you go. Dancing according to the poster. And dancing? <laughs> what? They're talk- talking as well. Talking Dramatic sensation. <laughs> okay, so, um, ladies and gentlemen, next week we will be discussing the Broadway Melody, uh, the second Best Picture winner to have ever been recorded. So that's going to be a treat and a half. Uh, Chris Olson, once again, thank you for joining us so much on this episode. It's been one of my favorite episodes. I love this conversation, and we look forward to having you back. Uh, just pick a film, and we'll uh, we'll try and get you on there. Well, thank you. I, I, I had a great time. Uh, thank you for having me on the show. I'm a big fan, so uh, this was this was a, a good time. Okay, I'm a big fan of yours. So let's uh, we'll just keep chatting and keep doing what you Woo! keep doing what you do, man. We love <laughs> thank it. Thank you. All right, and Alex, so good to have you back, man. Yes, so glad to be back. Yes. I really am. I, I I'm sorry, life got in the way, but it, it shall no longer. It does that. We understand. (laughs) We survived. (laughs) You're back now. Uh, Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for listening to Oscar Watch Podcast. Until next week, see you at the week.